Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 259. I'm your host, as always, Philip Hansen. Now, I would like to start off by apologizing for the giant hiatus we took from May till now. Uh, I got a little bit more busy with my master's dissertation than I thought I would, as well as having to move from England and back to Denmark. So I've been working on this podcast as much as I can um, during my time after my dissertation. So to make up for that, I've decided to pick five new stories from each of the months I've missed, which was June, July, and August. Now, before I get into the specifics of which stories I picked, I would like to remind you, as always, these stories are collected from a wide variety of sources all around the internet by our very, very fine editors, uh, including Diego. And, uh, of course, the sources to each of these stories can be found on news.stonepages.com. And now, without further ado, if you already have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, let's get to it. So, in June, we have the five stories, which are that Stonehenge wasn't that difficult to build after all. Uh, We have the bones under a pub changing how we view the Celtic. An 8,000-year-old piece of wood is actually baffling archaeologists. I know, we are quite a boring lot, aren't we? Then we have some very cool advanced scientific techniques being used to find out more about the Homo Naledi. And then we have some cave art found underground in Spain. For July, we have even more insights into the construction of Stonehenge. We find out that no game was too big for the early man. We also know that wine was used in ceremonies 5,000 years ago in Georgia, so cheers to that. We also have some aboriginal history being revealed in Australia, and surrounded by sharks too. What an interesting story. And then we have the new origins of farmed rice in China. Finally, for August, we have astronomy is being used to set up ancient stone monuments, something that David Connolly actually did a project on, if I remember correctly. Then we have a weird one about the northern European Neanderthals being driven to cannibalism. The third story is whether or not China was the cradle of modern man instead of Africa. We'll have to listen to find out. Then we have some ancient camping sites found in India. And last, but certainly not least, we have a Bronze Age mound discovered in northwestern China. And now for the first story of the Stone Pages Archeo News podcast. Uh, Surprising news in that Stonehenge wasn't so hard to build at all. Which is great news for all of you Stonehenge enthusiasts, meaning you can start already in your back garden. This news was found as a result of... Work done by researchers, experimenters to be more specific, at the University College of London, who found that moving the huge stones on sycamore wood sleighs, dragging along a uh, corrugated road of timbers, required a lot less effort than expected. This meant that the one-ton stone that they moved along the silver birch bark moved at about 3 meters every 5 seconds when pulled by just 10 people, which is roughly 2 kilometers an hour if you pull it continually. Now, the one-ton stone that was moved was not the same weight as the Presley blue stones, which are used at Stonehenge, but they would have weighed about double that much, so the stones would actually only have required 20 people to move. A doctoral student, Barney Harris, who was involved in the project, uh, was actually surprised that it required so few people to move the block. He said that it's true that we did the experiment on flat ground. And there should have been steep slopes to navigate when going through the Presley Mountains, but actually this kind of system works well on rough terrain. We know that pre-industrialized societies like the Maram Naga in India still use this kind of sledge to construct huge stone monuments. 
and similar Y-shaped sleighs have been found dating back to 2000 BCE in Japan, which we know were used to move uh, megaliths. The Chinese also used sleighs to build the Forbidden City, and some of those blocks are 123 tons. So in comparison, these blocks are quite small. Now, as we all know, Stonehenge was built during the Neolithic period between 4,000 to 5,000 years ago. The largest of the standing stones at Stonehenge weigh between 30 to 40 tons and are made out of the local sandstone from the area. However, the smaller stones are made out of the bluestones which come from Wales some 225 kilometers away. Now, as we reported on in a previous podcast, archaeologists at University College of London as well as the University of Leicester believed to have found the quarries that the stones used for Stonehenge came from. The spotted dolerite bluestones came from Congoidoc, uh, and the rhyolite bluestones from Craig Ross Ufelin. Hope I'm pronouncing those correctly. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. Now, uh, these rock quarries and the rocks themselves actually form natural pillars, allowing the prehistoric workers to detach each stone with minimum effort. Now, the Stonehenge expert, Professor Mike Parker Pearson of University College London, believes that these smaller bluestones were in fact part of another monument in Wales and were dragged from Wales to Wiltshire. But he was also quite amazed at the speed of which this was done. So, now that you know that it's a lot easier to build Stonehenge than you would think it is, so I don't see why we can't just get going. I mean, everybody should build a Stonehenge in their back garden. That'd be quite nice. And it would also confuse archaeologists in some thousand years, I believe. And now for our next story, we will go to the favorite place for all of archaeologists to go to, namely the pub. And this pub in particular is actually in Ireland, where some bones found underneath this pub have changed the view of what we know about the Irish. Now, 10 years ago, a pub owner in Northern Ireland uncovered a unusually large flat stone under which there were remains of three humans, and it was an ancient burial, it seems. Now, after recent DNA analysis, it has actually challenged the century-old account of Irish origins. Now, to give you a bit of backstory, the old account which these bones challenge has been held since the 16th century AD where historians taught that the Irish descended from the Celts, which were an Iron Age people uh, that originated in the middle of Europe, who invaded Ireland sometime between 1000 BCE and 500 BCE. However, these three skeletons are ancestors to the modern Irish and predate the Celts, and are believed to have arrived a thousand years or more before the Celts. One of the more striking features is that how much of the DNA resembles that of the contemporary Irish, Welsh, and Scots, which is quite odd as the older bones found in Ireland were more like the Mediterranean people. To quote uh, Barry Duncliffe, who is an emeritus professor of archaeology at Oxford University, he says that the DNA evidence based on those bones completely upends the traditional view. And the radiocarbonate of the bones shows that they go back to around 2000 BCE, hundreds of years older than the oldest artifacts from continental Europe, generally considered to be Celtic. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, the Irish, Welsh, and Scottish Gaelic languages share words and grammar and are indisputably related and are part of a group known as uh, Celtic. Now, it is believed that this language group specifically emerged as a similar evolution from Indo-European. However, it is unclear whether the term Celtic is appropriate for these languages. 
This is mostly due to the fact that over the last decade or so, more and more scholars have actually argued that the first Celtic languages were spoken not by Celts from the middle of Europe, but by ancient people on Europe's westernmost extremities, the British Isles or the Iberian Peninsula. This is further supported by inscriptions on artifacts from southern Portugal that strongly resemble the language known as Celtic and date back to around 700 BCE. Now, the Celts sacked Rome around 390 BCE and attacked Delphi in 279 BCE, so it does seem plausible that they had invaded Ireland as well. However, scholars have noted for decades how flimsy the evidence was uh, for that standard account, and also that the flow of Celtic culture was actually from the western edge of Europe into the rest of the continent. Now, normally, people I talk to like to paint archaeologists as a very simple-minded group of people, and this story just confirms that point in that archaeologists are having their mind blown by an 8,000-year-old piece of wood. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the whole thing, uh, there is some background story that we need to look at. Now, in Europe, the oldest boat to ever be discovered is a 10,000-year-old dugout canoe from the Netherlands. Meanwhile, the oldest plank-built vessel in the region are Bronze Age boats found at Dover in Yorkshire, and they are dated to between 3,500 and 4,000 years ago. At Bouldner Cliff, which lies 11 meters underwater off the northwest shore of the Isle of Wight in South England, Gary Momber and the Maritime Archaeology Trust have found something up to twice that age. This was originally discovered in 2005 at the bottom of a 7 meter high underwater cliff where Gary saw something. As he says, among the branches of an old tree was a collection of colored flints, some of which had been superheated. Now, two years after that, the team had enough money to investigate further, and their uh, 2 by 3 meter excavation revealed not only charcoal, but also flint tools, wood chippings, as well as well-crafted functional items and dozens of pieces of well-preserved timber. Most of these timbers were oak and were in the same position that they had fallen over 8,000 years ago. Some of them had actually been shaped, trimmed, while others had been charred to make them easier to work. Now, the one piece in particular that seems to be boggling archaeologists' minds is just under a meter long and about 8,100 years old, and had been split, which is a technique that doesn't appear anywhere else in the British archaeological record for another 2,500 years, when it was used uh, during the Bronze Age to build deeper log boats. And this is done by removing a quarter of the tree and hollowing out the remaining three quarters of it. When this tree was felled, it would have been a couple of meters wide and several tens of meters high. Apart from this, the team also found a scalloped out end piece, which is timbers that form the end of the structure, and a cord would have united these various elements. Now, taking all of these things together, this would actually make Boldner Cliff the oldest known boat building site in the world. However, as Gary says, the problem is that we still need more evidence to be 100% certain. Now, Gary and his team will return to the site in June, and you can follow their progress at Dick Ventures on Facebook and the Dick Ventures on Twitter. I also do believe they have a website, so you may or may not be able to find it on there. Uh, but best of luck to you, Gary. It sounds like a quite an amazing site and wouldn't mind diving with you. Now, in archaeology, um, one of the big challenges is actually finding new techniques to kind of move forward and continue making archaeological excavations easier and usually one of the better ways to do that is through advanced recording. 
Now, more recently, with uh, some of the excavations going on in South Africa around the Homo Lady uh, excavations, we actually have a lot of advanced techniques being used to figure out more about this ancestor of ours. Now, these advanced techniques were actually used because, as it turns out, the uh, Dina Lady chamber in the Rising Star Cave in uh, Malmani Dolomites, which are part of the Cradle of Humankind World Heritage Site in South Africa, that's a mouthful, Professor Lee Berger's team was faced with a challenge. For those of you who don't know, um, the cave where the Homo Lady were found goes down, and then it dips down a lot more, uh, roughly by 12 meters, actually, in a vertical chute. Now, the problem is the hole leading to this chute is only about 18 centimeters wide. This led Professor Berger to call for a skinny underground um, team of astronauts to help traverse the cave. As it turns out, this uh, team was actually all female and using aerial drone photography, high resolution 3D, as well as other techniques, this all female uh, team was able to map the entire cave and make real-time decisions while they were actually excavating. Kruger, who is a PhD candidate in paleoanthropology at the Evolutionary Studies Institute at WITS, stated that um, this is the first time ever where multiple digital data imaging collection has been done on such a huge scale during a homonym excavation, also adding that these methods provided researchers with a digital representation of the site from landscape level right down to the individual bones. Now, this ancestor was found quite recently in 2013 by the recreational cavers uh, Rick Hunter and Stephen Tucker in the Rising Star Cave, and it was assigned the genus Homo by anthropologists being given the formal name Homo Nalidi. For those of you interested in the excavation, as well as the results, I can already announce that Kruger has published some of the results in the South African Journal of Science, with a number of papers planned for publishing. The research on-site will continue and hopes to answer the questions of how the site was formed, if anything can be gained from the fossil positioning, as well as how the bodies came to be in the actual cave. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and now time for the second stable of the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, because I feel whenever we actually do a podcast, we always focus on two things. We focus on Stonehenge, as one, though we haven't had many news from that the past few podcasts, and we also focus on Paleolithic paintings, especially from Spain. And here's another one. So for the last story of June, we have a very large set of Paleolithic cave drawings from Spain that could rank among the best in a country, which already boasts some of the world's most important cave art. The chief site archaeologist, Diego Gaate, says that an estimated 70 drawings were found on ledges 300 meters underground in the Axura caves in the northern Basque region, and he actually describes the site as being amongst the top 10 in Europe. The engravings and paintings feature horses, buffalo, goats, and deer, and date to between 12,500 to 14,500 years ago. However, due to the difficult and dangerous nature of the area, Gaate sadly says that it will not be open to public, or at least it will be very unlikely. Now, the cave was actually discovered in 1929 and was explored in 1934-35, but it wasn't until 2014 that Gaate and his team resumed their investigations and actually found the drawings. One of the team members, Jose Uavieta, sorry for slaughtering your name, who is a prehistory professor at Madrid's Complutense University, says that no one expected a discovery of this magnitude. There is a lot of caves with drawings, but very few have this much art and this much variety and quality. 
Gaate also notes that one of the buffalo drawings depicts what must be the most hunting lances of any in Europe. Most have four or five lances, but this one has almost 20. Uraveda also adds that given the cave's hidden location and the number, variety, and quality of its drawings, it's being classified as a sanctuary or special Paleolithic meeting ritual place, like those seen at Altamira in Spain or Lascaux in France. The regional officials hope to set up a 3D display of the art so the public can appreciate it. And with that story, ladies and gentlemen, we have now completed all of the stories for June, and we will be swiftly heading into July. And now having finished up our June stories, let's head on into July, where our first story is a Stonehenge story. Though from the contents of it, it does look like it was more or less from around the time before our June story. This is due to the fact that it's concerning a recent discovery of a Y-shaped wooden sledge at a megalithic site in Japan, and has led the team at the University College London, UCL, to rethink how the Stonehenge stones were moved. Now, as we said in the last story, they found out that using the sledge on wooden rollers would help, though previous experiments had been done only with the wooden rollers. This was quite impractical, unless the tree trunks were the exact same size as the other, um, just to make it easier to roll. However, um, the newer technique uses what's called static rollers with a smooth, low-friction wooden sledge being pulled over them. Now, as you know, the experiment involved just a slab of stone weighing a mere one ton, and a team of ten who managed to pull this one-ton stone easily at a steady speed of about 1.6 kilometers an hour. This, of course, leads to the idea that the uh, two-ton bluestones from the Presley Hills in West Wales could have been moved to Stonehenge this way. Now, it should be noted that use of this kind of sled is only conjecture at this point, as we have no archaeological evidence showing that this was how it was moved, and we will more or less probably never have any historical evidence for it. It is prehistory, after all. However, what Barney Harris says is that all we can really tell from experiments like this is the minimum number of people involved. My preliminary calculations led me to believe it would take slightly more people in the event what I thought would take 15 people at a minimum actually needed only 10. Now, as the people from UCL are quite good scientists, they will of course be carrying out more experiments over a wider variety of surfaces. This experiment uh, was actually done on smooth manicured grass at Gordon Square, which is adjacent to UCL. And it is believed that more experiments over a wide variety of surfaces will give a more revised estimate of the construction period for Stonehenge, as it will give an idea of how many people it would need over different environments. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as I learned from a very young age, there is no mountain high enough and there is no valley low enough, which I should probably stop quoting unless I want a copyright lawsuit. But more importantly, for the Paleolithic people, there is no game too big to hunt, especially for the Stone Age man. This was the result of a research done by a team from the Tel Aviv University in Israel who have looked into the consumption and possible hunting of prehistoric elephants by the Paleolithic dwellers. Their study examined a wide variety of sites from across the world, ranging from the Republic of Djibouti, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, in Africa, to Valencia in Spain, and to the Dead Sea Rift Valley, and as far east as Russia. Now, to give you an idea behind how much effort is required to kill and hunt one of these elephants, or rather the reverse order, the modern-day African elephant weighs in at an excess of 400 kilos. 
In comparison, the extinct elephant roaming the planet during the Pleistocene era, which would have been during the Stone Age, was approximately twice this size. Now, as I'm sure we all know, the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward, and it certainly is the case for this elephant hunting. The entire head of the elephant was actually quite nutritious and provided a quite correct uh, balance of meat and fat, especially when you take into consideration the brain, the tongue, ears, and trunk. And there is actually evidence in Valencia, specifically in the Bolonar cave, that the skull and the jaw bones were crushed to extract the marrow. However, such a big animal does not just lay down on its own, and a lot of corroboration was needed to kill the animal, but also transport the heads back to the campsites. Such a site at Gesher Benod Yaakov in the Dead Sea Rift Valley has evidence of the remains of 154 elephants. The leaders of the team who found these elephants, uh, Aviad Agam and Ran Bakai, are quoted saying that the repeated evidence of transportation of elephants' heads to residential sites indicates it was chosen to be transported back. Alright ladies and gentlemen, and now for a story concerning wine, which some of you may be drinking now after knowing what long podcast this will be, and its use in ceremonies 5,000 years ago in Georgia. This comes to us as the result of an excavation done 100 kilometers west from Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia, and was led by Elena Rova from the Chafoskari University of Venice and Iwilon Gagoshitz, sorry if I mispronounced your name, from the Georgian National Museum of Tbilisi. And they've actually found traces of wine inside the animal-shaped vessels from around 3000 BCE. The site revealed two zoomorphic vessels, uh, which are unique to the region and are known as Kura Araxis jars, and are found in a rectangular area, which could possibly be a shrine for cultic activities. Now, the radiocarbon dating suggests that they were done between 3000 and 2900 BCE. Iviso Kvavatste, who was the paleontologist, probably confused a lot more paleontologists, studied the vessels and actually found uh, the pollen of Vitis vinifera, which is the common grape wine, and this actually underlines the strategic role that wine took in the Kura Araxis uh, for ritual drinking. Professor Rova says that this is significant because the context of discovery suggests that wine was drawn from the jar and offered to the gods or commonly consumed by the participants to the ceremony. Now, with this discovery... It means that the use of wine has actually been pushed back to more than 5,000 years ago, although it has been known that Georgia has produced wine since the Neolithic period, and this discovery has helped push it back even further. Now, it is believed that the wine would have been drunk from animal horns as part of the Supra, which is a traditional Georgian banquet. The excavation at the Chaforskari started in 2013 and has made some impressive discoveries, uh, especially with the help of the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in 2015, 27 researchers and students from Italy and Georgia also took part in an excavation and helped uncover these vessels. The 2016 season ran from June 17th until July 31st, and I'm excited to see what discoveries we will get from that excavation. And now for a story concerning the Aboriginal history, which has been found in some caves in Australia. These caves are located on Salisbury Island, which lies 60 kilometers off the southern coast of Western Australia. And in this area, there are a series of caves which contain Aboriginal artifacts and is also patrolled by sharks. I guess you could say that seeing as Nazis have stopped being a problem for guys like Indiana Jones, we have had to move to the nature side of it, meaning sharks, big, great whites. Huh. Um, 
Here, archaeologists, as well as traditional owners of the land, outlone divers, and filmmakers have helped search for the archaeological artifacts. One of the people involved in the project, David Goldfoyle, who works with Applied Archaeology Australia, is the leader of the project and has said that the present-day mainland is 60 kilometers to the north of the island and has documented evidence of human occupation in granite caves extending at least 13,000 years before present. He also adds that, so we know people were living here when they walked the limestone ridge. Now, the area around the island rises between 80 to 100 meters above the flat coastal plain and would have been a very distinct feature for the inhabitants of the region in the late Pleistocene period. At the height of the Ice Age, some 18,000 years ago, the caves would have been uh, above water and offered shelter for people. However, the modern period area is almost only patrolled by sharks who feed on the local wildlife and I guess also careless divers. Doc Reynolds, who is a traditional owner and senior heritage director for the Esperance Chalchak Native Tile Aboriginal Corporation, has also said that this place will look like Ularulu in the red center of Australia, a massive feature surrounded by low, flat bushland and rocky outcrops. It would have drawn my ancestors here for the many resources it provided. From an Aboriginal perspective, it's been a mind-blowing cultural experience to actually stand on an island that used to be joined to the mainland all those years ago. And you think that I may be the first Aboriginal person to stand on that island since. And now, the last of our July stories is on rice. Seeing as we found the earliest evidence of domesticated rice in China, and it's about 9,000 years old, so way past its uh, Dubai date. The now-expired rice were found by Professor Gary Crawford, who worked with three researchers from the Provincial Institute of Cultural Relics and Archaeology in Xinjiang Province, China, an anthropological archaeologist, as well as the University of Toronto, Mississauga. And they found the fragments in a probable ditch in the lower Yangtze Valley, south and southwest of Shanghai. These remains document an early stage of rice domestication and the ecological setting in which the earliest cultivation was taking place. It should be noted that the rice plant remains had characteristics of Japonica rice, which is short-grain rice used in sushi today, which is cultivated in Japan and Korea, meaning that this is the first confirmation that it grew in this region of China. Now, as I'm sure you all know, organic remains are very hard to find and prove archaeologically, and this is the same for domesticated rice, especially when you're looking for the initial steps leading to the domestication of rice in China. Crawford and his colleagues, they spent about three years exploring the five-hectare site called Hooksy, which is situated in a flat basin about 100 meters above sea level. Digging 1.5 meters down, they were able to find sophisticated pottery, stone tools, as well as animal bones, charcoal, and other plant seeds. However, the study builds on Crawford's previous research into the early agriculture of China, and in this research, he examines ancient settlements, tools, and plant and animal management efforts in different regions of the country to better understand how the people of China transitioned from hunters and gatherers to farmers. The question I ultimately want to answer is, what pushed them to move wholeheartedly into the farming regime? Why did they reduce their emphasis on hunting and expanding into crop production? He adds that people did what they needed to do to make their lives more manageable and sustainable, and the unintended consequence was farming. With rice discovery, we're seeing the first stages of that shift. And now for our August stories, which sadly didn't have a Stonehenge story, but I still managed to find one on megaliths, specifically showing that astronomy is set in the ancient stone monuments. The research that proved this has done so statistically for the first time, showing that the early standing monuments 
of stone in Britain were oriented with the sun and the moon. The study made use of both 2D and 3D technology to test the patterns of the alignment. The project leader and University of Adelaide visiting researcher fellow Dr. Gail Higginbottom says nobody before this has ever statistically determined that a single stone circle was constructed with astronomically phenomena in mind. It was all supposition. The project examined the oldest great stone circles built in Scotland, Callanish on the Isle of Lewis, and Stennis on the Isle of Orkney, and the researchers found a great concentration of alignment towards the sun and the moon at different times of their cycle. And, 2,000 years later, much simpler monuments were still being built in Scotland that had at least one of the same astronomical alignments found at the Great Circles. Apart from this, they also discovered that there was a more complex relationship between the alignment of the stones surrounding the landscape and the horizon to the movements of the sun and the moon across that specific landscape. Higginbottoms explains that this research is finally proof that the ancient Britons connected the earth to the sky with their earliest standing stones and that this practice continued in the same way for 2,000 years. What's interesting to note is that the monuments are divided more or less down the middle in the placement of some stones. At about half the sides, the northern horizon is relatively higher and closer, meaning that the summer solstice rises out of the highest peak in the north. The other half is the exact opposite. It's higher and closer in the southern horizon, out of which rises the winter solstice. Dr. Higginbottom has concluded from this that these people chose to erect these great stones very precisely with the landscape and in relation to the astronomy they knew. They invested a tremendous amount of effort and work to do so. It tells us about their strong connection with their environment and how important it must have been to them for their culture and for their culture's survival. And now for our next story, it's actually quite an intriguing one, something that I've actually never really considered. Apparently, a recent study has shown that uh, Northern European Neanderthals were driven to cannibalism, possibly. This is the result of an intriguing puzzle unraveled around the collection of bones from uh, numerous digs over two centuries, which is from the Troisenne Caverne de Goyette in Belgium. Through the use of -of state-of-the-art techniques, such as DNA and chemical analysis of the bones, it has been possible to identify the remains of five individual Neanderthals, which have been mixed in with the remains of other animals, including reindeer and horses. Now, the study team from the Royal Belgian Institute of Natural Sciences and the California State University in the U.S. have concluded that there is probably evidence of cannibalism from the Neanderthal bone fragments, which were identified by the smashing of bones to extract the marrow and the sharpening of some of the bone fragments to act as tools. However, the big question is, are these bones part of a ritual or are they part of a just survival technique? While there is evidence for both sides, such as malnutrition, hinting at starvation levels, pointing to the idea of survival, it is also known that Neanderthal tribes led very complex and widely different lives and had different practices even within the relative short distance of each other. Anthropologist and the study author Helen Ruggia is quoted saying, Cannibalism scares people. It doesn't mean that Neanderthals weren't a complex culture. We cannot treat them so simply. And now for a story that is slightly controversial in nature, specifically on where did modern man actually come from. This story specifically suggests that China might be possible instead of Africa. Now, this is based on a find back in 1929, just outside of Beijing, 
uh, where they found a 500,000-year-old skull, which was rapidly named the Peking Man, which was the name for Beijing in the early 20th century. When this was found, it led scientists to believe that modern humanity had first evolved in the Far East instead of coming from Africa. Though more recent discoveries have kind of swung the opinion over to having origins in Africa, which is the current consensus. In case you were wondering, though, the strength and depth of the evidence pointing to Africa instead of China was indented even when the Peking man was re-aged using more modern techniques that dated it to over 780,000 years old. And it is worth noting that despite this very young dating, relatively speaking anyways, there is still a very big mystery surrounding the Peking man and his place in the modern evolutionary puzzle. And it has actually challenged Chinese paleontologists for quite some bit, especially with the discovery of more hominids across eastern China, with uh, intervening years ranging from 80,000 to 1.7 million years old. And that's only really added to the confusion and contradictory claims coming from this area. Now, whether we like it or not, archaeology does have still some source of nationalism in it, even though we have kind of moved away from that. And in this case, Western researchers have made unsubstantiated claims that their Chinese counterparts are manipulating data to favor evolutionary origins in China instead of Africa. These claims have actually been uh, rebuffed by the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, the, the IVPP, in Beijing. And leading paleontologist Wu Xingxi is quoted saying this has nothing to do with nationalism. It's all about the evidence, the transitional fossils and archaeological artifacts. Everything points to continuous evolution in China from Homo erectus to modern man. Despite these claims and counterclaims, the wealth of evidence emerging from China is fascinating and exciting other researchers all around the world, and it will probably continue to do so. Michael Petralia, who is an archaeologist from the Oxford University, said that uh, the center of gravity is shifting eastwards. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and now for our second to last story coming to us from India, where an ancient camping site has been found. An ancient camping site dating back to 8500 BCE has recently been unearthed in Ladakh, in an Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. The site indicates that humans were as interested in camping 10,500 years ago as they are now and was found 14,000 feet above sea level on the way from Sasela to Ladakh. The site was dated with a charcoal sample which was sent to Florida for carbon dating and uh, more samples derived from upper and lower deposits sent for dating indicated two radiocarbon dates of 8,500 BCE and 7,300 BCE respectively. Both of these radiocarbon dates indicate frequent human activity at the site for nearly 800 years. Experts say that the research so far carried out has proved the antiquity and nature of human activities to an extent, but their camping patterns, extent of camping area, tools, and other cultural aspects are yet to be traced. Alright ladies and gentlemen, and now for our last story of this podcast, we have a large Bronze Age mound discovered in northwestern China. Archaeologists in Xingxiang, northwest China, discovered a Bronze Age stone mound that is probably the largest and best preserved of its kind. The team's leading archaeologist, Wu Xinghua, said that the mound is made out of cobbles and mud and is shaped like a cone surrounded by two stone walls. The outer wall has a diameter of 114 meters, and the site only has minor damage at its top. 
This makes it one of the most important sites discovered in Xinjiang, where archaeologists are studying the ancient regions and nomadic culture that lived in the vast prairie of their region. The mound can be dated back to 2,500 to 3,000 years ago in the Late Bronze Age or even a bit earlier, which is a claim that is supported by aerial photography and data calculated from sites and burial graves discovered last year in Russia's Republic of Tuba and Mount Tianshan in eastern Xinjiang. Li Yun, who is the deputy director of Xinjiang's Cultural Heritage Administration, said that the discovery will probably help to prove the peaceful interconnection of ancient cultures along the Silk Road, as the site discovered in Xinjiang showed many resemblances to those of other countries and regions in Central Asia. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we have concluded today's podcast. But fret not, for if you are still thirsty after more archaeology news stories, you can always go to news.stonepages.com, where you can find the sources for all of the stories we cover today, as well as all of the stories that we may have missed during this podcast, or that we rather definitely did miss during this podcast. I would also like to announce that I actually got an email for Stone Pages, which is philip at stonepages.com. That's philip spelled P-H-I-L-I-P and then at stonepages.com. If you have any corrections, uh, whether it's the facts that we got wrong during the story or the pronunciation of certain names of people, towns, just in general, I know I mispronounced a lot of stuff feel free to send it to me there as well as any questions you may have for me or anything else you uh, just want to write to me. So without further ado, I'd like to wish you all a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon, depending on when you listen to this, and I will see you next time.